Good evening and welcome to this very special um, book and bottle salon here um, at the British Library. It's always a thrill and a privilege to be here. It's always also slightly scary because I owe a lot of fines. Um, I'm hoping that I get away again tonight without that. Anyway, it's lovely to be here. And the wines are brought to you tonight by Corney and Barrow, the historically tasteful wine merchants. Um, they are wonderful. And you're going to be trying those three wines and they'll be available for you to to buy afterwards. Now, the wines might be from the book. Actually, one of the wines, the sherry, is from the book, but others are inspired by it or inspired by the characters, so you really need to think broadly. And if you want to find out more about them, on our website, we've got a bibulosography, um, which is all the drinks in all the books, and you can listen to the podcasts where me and my guests get steadily drunker um, over the evening. So there you are. Um, anyway, to tonight, um, Amy Bloom is the author of Three, now four, fantastic novels, Lucky Us, Away, and Love Invences, as well as three collections of richly awarded short stories. She is the Shapiro Silverberg Professor of Creative Writing, which sounds made up but isn't, I checked, um, at Wesleyan University, and she also works um, as a psychotherapist. So if any of you have any issues you want to take to her at the signing table, um, I'm sure she'll deal with them in a very well-boundaried fashion. Um, she's written for The New Yorker, for Atlantic Magazine and Vogue, and we're here tonight to talk about her new novel, White Houses. Um, this is easily one of the best novels I've read in the past year. Um, I had really high expectations, and I have to say they were, they were all met. This is a story of a passionate love affair hidden at the heights of power between the patrician Eleanor Roosevelt and the outsider Lorena Hickok. Um, Hick to her friends and to her lovers. Then, as now, the White House was filled with secrets, only none of them was a woman called Stormy. Um, and Russia wasn't involved, as far as we know. Um, this is the story of how two very different women uh, got away with loving one another at the heart of the American establishment. To read the book is to fall in love with them and their hugely accomplished chronicler. Please welcome Amy Bloom. Hi. It's very exciting. Um, so We're happy to see each other. The last time we saw each other was in Australia. Oh, yeah. That's a story for another time, yeah. as you may have guessed. Um, would you read for us a wee bit? Sure. Which bit do you want to read from? Um, I could read a little bit from there. And I mean, there isn't a bad bit, but you know. I, I like when you say that, and then I could end oh, up there. Great. Yes, lovely. Okie doke. Um, the setting for this is 1945. It's um, Eleanor Roosevelt always kept an apartment in Manhattan. And two weeks after her husband dies, she manages to empty the White House after they've been there for 12 years, take all of the boxes out, get everybody's uh, junk out, hand a key to Bess Truman, wish her lots of luck and go to her apartment in Washington Square where she calls Lorena Hickok, who had been her lover for about five years. And in the last few years, they have been friends. And um, Eleanor arrives exhausted and immediately uh, goes to bed. And this is a couple of hours later. It's Friday night, April 27th, 1945. It's hard to believe that the first thing Eleanor says to me over the cheese and crackers and sidecars is, dearest, my secretary will be here bright and early Monday morning. Early. I won't linger, I say. You're insulted, she says. Damn right. Half and half, I say, and I get a kiss for that, and I'm more insulted by the reward like I've mastered sit and shake hands. I could stay on, I say, just to see. And Eleanor says, that would be hard on Tommy, who's the secretary, wouldn't it? Tommy Thompson's been with the Roosevelt since before me. She lives to serve Eleanor. She'd watch me get hit by a car and grieve only for Eleanor's distress, and my guess is she feels that way about everyone in the world, including her first husband and her current beau. And if Tommy comes in to find me drinking coffee in my pajamas, she'll nod and cough. I'll get a half smile. She'll pace around the living room like it's a boxing ring, hat on, hat off. Finally, she'll plant herself at the dining room table, pull out her hat pin like she's ready to kill Hitler, take her hat off one last time, open her portable typewriter and say, Mrs. R, let's get started. Then she'll go to the kitchen and make a cup of coffee that could strip paint, a cup for each of them, and sit there square as a house, I should talk, while she waits for me to gather up my things, hang up my towel, and get the hell back to Long Island. 
For years, Tommy and I would find ourselves going to the same meetings jammed in Franklin's elevator. It was a tight fit. We faced each other. There was no other way. We were square women standing wide front to wide front, smelling each other's morning coffee and cigarettes. Going up, she usually said, ladies' shoes, linens, kitchen wares, secrets of the White House, I'd say, and she'd snort. I don't want to upset Tommy, I call out, and Eleanor doesn't say anything, and I walk back to the living room, and only the small lamp is on. She's lying on the couch in her kimono with her hair unpinned and her eyes closed. Sometimes, she says, I get sick of my own self. Likewise, I say, it doesn't matter. She says, the first time Franklin was elected president, when he beat the pants off Mr. Hoover, I cried so hard I couldn't even greet our guests the next morning. We had just met, and I was wild about you, and I never met anyone like you, and I thought, he'll lose, and he'll be governor for a while longer, and who cares what the governor's wife does anyway, and I thought, I'll keep teaching, and you and I will be together all the time, and then he won, and I thought, it's over. It wasn't, I say. And now that we've both showered and washed our hair with French shampoo from before the war, we sit down on the couch in our old Terry robes. I say, we look like a pair of polar bears. <laughs> Eleanor says, I have never stopped loving you. That really is what I was trying to say before. I know, I say, likewise. You know what I've always loved about you? No, she says, as if she can't recall. I always loved when you would walk into one of Franklin's late night cocktail parties with one of the girls tossing their curls at him and you would just clear your throat. That's all you had to do. And they all froze and she clears her throat to make me laugh. I love that. I did, I say. They just stopped on a dime. You'd pocket his balls and walk out and I love that every time. <laughs> did I seem like a nag, she says. I wouldn't call it nagging. It was like having the Statue of Liberty watch you have one beer too many. <laughs> Everyone except Franklin would shrink a little, and Eleanor would purse her lips as if she was so clobbered with disgust she couldn't hide it. And when I wasn't the victim, I loved it. Eleanor leans forward, and the strap tears off from her slip, and we both hear it. Well, that old slip's done, I say. I'm glad. And she pulls it off, and I unbutton my shirt, and I let my robe open, and our tired white flesh meets, and what may not look beautiful does feel beautiful. And Eleanor says we should turn out the light, and I say, I will pay you a million dollars to let me look at you right now. Every woman's body is an intimate landscape, the hills, the valleys, the narrow ledges, the river banks, the sudden eruptions of soft or crinkling hair. And here are the plains, the fine dry slopes. Here are the woods. Here is the smooth path to the only door I wish to walk through. Eleanor's body is still the landscape of my true home. Okay. Uh, what may not look beautiful feels beautiful is, is one of my favorite lines um, in the whole book. Um, so let's start off with, with the two women and who they are. This is going to happen a lot. I'm sorry, we can, we can do nothing about it. Is that a plane? I think it's a helicopter. Oh, a helicopter. Could be the wedding, you know, you want to <laughs> film the wedding. Um, so let's start with, with Eleanor. And the kind of, you describe her there as a Statue of Liberty. She's this kind of, patrician figure, isn't she? What, who is she? What's her background? Where does she come from? Well, bef um, the Roosevelt's are sort of a, the, the closest thing America had for a long time to a royal family. There are a lot of Roosevelt's. There was the Franklin Delano Roosevelt branch. There is the Teddy Roosevelt branch, which is the Oyster Bay branch. And um, there are even Roosevelt Roosevelt's in America who have their own separate social organization, which is just for Roosevelt's who marry other Roosevelt's. And, um, <laughs> and there are a lot of them. Uh, she is a sort of classic poor little rich girl in America. She had um, a beautiful, mean, stupid mother who told her every day how plain she was and how unfortunate it was that she was so plain. So. Was, the mother, was her mother beautiful? Her mother was a great beauty and yeah. apparently an idiot. And, um, but, you know, good news, bad news, she dies when Eleanor's quite young. And then her <laughs> father is, um, uh, is a, just a roaring alcoholic um, who also suffers at the hands of being a Roosevelt, Elliot Roosevelt, because he is Teddy Roosevelt, President Teddy Roosevelt's brother. And 
At some point, he uh, has an affair with uh, one of the servants in the Roosevelt family and has a child. And as the scandal is growing about the baby, Teddy Roosevelt, who is planning another run at the White House, arranges for his brother to be institutionalized in an asylum from which he periodically escapes. And when he successfully escapes, becomes um, a roaring alcoholic. He, too, dies when Eleanor is young, so she is an orphan at 13. Oh which is exactly the same as Lorena Hickok, the woman whom she will meet later in her life, also orphaned at 13. Um, so she's on her own, but she's incredibly wealthy. She's, it is a, a life of enormous privilege, and the greatest happiness, I think, for her is that she is allowed to go to boarding school in England at yeah. Allenswood. And as she says, they were the four happiest years of her life. Yeah. She gets an education, she moves around in the world. She sees herself as a person. She learns a few languages. And she also gets away from her crazy, marauding uncles with whom she is forced to live yeah. back in the States. And the great tragedy for her is that she is uh, pulled back by her grandmother to become a debutante. And so she cannot go on to get uh, a university education, which is the great regret of so her she life. So she would have been happy being a... What, what then would have been a kind of blue stocking figure? She just, I, yeah. I think blue stocking was exactly what she would have liked. One of the very, one of the funny things is in the sort of mainstream American histories, they're always sort of saying things like, well, obviously Eleanor Roosevelt led a very cloistered life, and so she certainly didn't know what a lesbian was. She's, and all of her entire social circle were educated women who were presidents of girls' colleges and, and educators and democratic uh, politicians, and they were all gay. And her, almost her entire social circle was um, gay. And um, she kept her own career even when uh, Franklin Roosevelt became governor and very much wanted to go on being a teacher and yeah. a political activist. Um, when he had polio and had, you know, really couldn't get around anymore, she taught herself to drive so she could go out and give his speeches for him when he wasn't able to go. And um, as, as her husband is running for governor, Lorena Hickok, who has been the foremost female journalist in the United States, she was the first woman to have a New York Times byline. Yeah. And she has just finished covering what was a major crime in America, which was the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. And as sort of a break for her, she is offered the opportunity to cover, cover Eleanor Roosevelt, whose husband is running for governor. And she would have preferred to run to cover Franklin, but that's not a possibility because no women are allowed to cover the presidential races. They're just, they're, they're not given interviews, they're not, I mean, they're not even given access to the White House. And they meet as reporter so and just subject. Just before we get to the meeting, uh, let's talk about, about Heck. So we know that, so that's, so that's Eleanor. Um, Heck has a similar background in the sense that she's also an orphan. Yes. Uh, she also has a life that she wants to get away from, but she grew, you know, she grows up dark poor uh, in South yeah. Dakota. I think at one point she actually says, I'm from South Dakota, anything that isn't dark excites me. Um, I'm so sorry about this noise, everybody. I know. We could be saying anything, are we just moving mouths? <laughs> I, I mean, really, uh, can you actually hear us at all? You can? Are you sure? Okay. We're not we'll, just moving mouths. We'll just keep projecting. We'll keep projecting. But, you know, she's growing up, South Dakota, I mean, her family is a horror show. She's, yeah. she's raped by her father, her siblings, you know, they're, 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 they're torn asunder. She runs off to the circus. Yeah. Tell us about that. Well, she runs off to the circus because this is a novel, and, I am, <laughs> and I'm a novelist, and I am not a historian. But there's a period of about six months when she's about 14 years old, and there's just nothing in her history. And I thought, well, that's, that, that's, that's my room. That's my opportunity. And... Um, I always wanted to write about the sort of traveling carnivals and sideshows in America, in the Midwest, at the turn of the century. So off she goes to the circus to meet the alligator girl and the lobster boy and Jerry, brother and sister, in one body. 
Yeah, I, 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 I mean, that chapter is so truly carnivalesque. I mean, you, you are genuinely having great fun with it. I detected that you possibly had to cut it back a little bit. I felt like I you did. got quite invested in the carnival. Oh, yeah, no, no. Oh, my God, I... the cars are coming now. I think it was the carnival. Oh, the carnival, yeah, carnival. the carnival. Um, yeah, I know I was like 90 pages into the carnival. I just, I, I, I had researched tap dance acts and like Siamese sister strip shows. I, I was just having a great time and my poor editor is looking at this and going, is, is this a different novel or is this the same novel? And I go, I, oh, I take your point, you know, we'll go, we'll go back to, to Lorena and to Eleanor. Um, but it was, it was great for me because it ended up being a wonderful opportunity to write about Lorena becoming and understanding herself to be an outsider and sort of seeing both the strengths and the difficulties of that position which she would hold for the rest of her life. Yeah, I mean, that's what makes her an incredible journalist and an observer is, is that sense of being outside. And she also learns a lot at that point about her sexuality, doesn't she, with the, her interaction with the, the brother and sister in one yeah. body. Because up until that point, you know, it's not been something she wanted to explore or, you know, she was, she, was, she was afraid of, and then she's confronted by, is he actually a hermaphrodite? No, most of these were what they would call gaffed acts, which in, which in fact is that people were not really enormously outside the range of most folks. They, but they were people who had maybe, they were a little furrier than most people, or a guy might have like a little bit of sort of a pudgy breast, and then he would really develop and masculinize one side of his, side of his body and sort of make the other side of his body as soft and white as possible. So he wasn't a real hermaphrodite. He was a guy with like a little pudgy breast who decided that this would be a great way to make a living <laughs> and probably beat the hell out of, you know, working in the back of a store. And um, It seems like a really natural progression rather than <laughs> like just going to the gym possibly or like, you know, cutting back on yeah, soybeans. It was, it it's was just 1905. Like, yeah, no, I know it's true. So sorry. they weren't going to the gym. But also one of the things that was striking to me was how many people actually wished to join the carnival. Yeah. Um, my fantasy about it has been, had been, oh, all these poor people whose horrible rejecting families, you know, take them out of the root cellar in the attic and sell them to the carnival, and that's the end of it. But in fact, when you read a lot of first-person accounts, especially in the turn of the century, people were longing to go. People would, like, when the carnival would come through town, there would be kids who had been in the root cellars or been in the attics who had been rejected by their families, wildly waving to be taken in because in the circus, they could just be people. Yeah. They, in fact, in the circus, they were not freaks. Yeah. They were just circus people, just carny folk. And that was fascinating to me. And, and because that character is not um, a, a man and a woman, he, in fact, is a man, she realizes actually what I really want is women. That's when she really realizes that she's a lesbian. And she, well, right. although she doesn't call it that, but that's when she really realizes she's attracted to women. Yes, um, that what she is hoping when she puts her hand on his little breast is that there would be a woman on the other side of it rather than a guy with a little small pudgy breast. And she sort of, he recognizes it and she recognizes it. And it's the moment in which she comes to understand better who she is. Um, so um, Hick gets to New, to New York to the, um, and to DC. And what do we know about the real life first meeting between the two women? Well, one of the pleasures of writing a novel is that there are so many things that historians don't know. And so there are so many scenes that nobody was present for in so many rooms, right? In the room where it happens, there are so many times when people are not there. And so she is assigned to cover Eleanor Roosevelt. She is very disappointed that she is not covering Franklin. Um, there is some suggestion in, in one piece that she writes about covering Mrs. Roosevelt in which there's no suggestion of sort of disappointment, but there is a lot of emphasis by Hick on the plainness of the dress and the sensibleness of the shoes and um, not at all a glamorous figure. And the rest I make up. Yeah. Um, so when do you think that an attraction first 
I mean, I know when it happens in, in, in the novel, but when, when do you think they first clocked one another? In that first meeting, or do you think it took more time? Were they, how guarded did they have to be at this point? I think that they were certainly guarded, but I also think that that's, that is that moment where you're having a drink with somebody or a cup of tea, and you look at them, and they look at you, and there's just that little pilot light that goes on, even if nobody says anything. And I think for them, they do end up taking a long train ride to upstate New York, for which I can find absolutely no reason except that they wanted to be together. I mean, there's nothing to suggest that there was a pressing interest in the New York newspapers about the St. Lawrence Seaway at the time. Yeah. But off they go to the St. Lawrence Seaway, and also, unfortunately for Eleanor, off to the funeral of her husband's mistress's mother, which she is forced to attend and represent Franklin Roosevelt at. Yes, that's an awkward scene, just, just a it little. Is. Yeah. Um, so how, so, so the, the pilot light goes on, the, the, the attraction starts to happen, but there's a, a challenge for Hick here, which is that as a journalist, she wants to remain right. objective. She wants to get the story, not be the story, right? Yeah, she does, and on the other hand, she's madly in love. And as she says in the novel, you can't have a reporter living in the White House. And I, my own feeling, there's, there's no, again, there's no history about what Eleanor said, but my feeling is that Eleanor thought, oh, well, surely you can go write something. You go, you be a writer, and you go bring your typewriter, and you go write something else, and move into the White House. There's a bedroom right next to mine. In fact, there's an adjoining door, because Eleanor and Franklin did not, by that point, share a bedroom. And so... She moves into the White House, and she tries not to quit her job, but it's clear to her that she's going to have to. And she quits her job and gets a job working for the Roosevelt administration doing uh, reports on the Depression, which are brilliant. Um, they are like, it's like reading Steinbeck. You know, just she goes from state to state to state in her little busted car and sends these reports back to the president and to the first lady and to Harry Hopkins, who's responsible for the federal emergency relief. And she does that for the next two years. Yeah. And when she is not there, she's living in the White House. Wow. So when did you first become aware of them as a, as a couple in your life? Like, I didn't, I, I need to say whatever I was taught in American history when I was in high school, I didn't pay any attention. I mean, whatever I was doing in high school, it was not attending my American history class. <laughs> and so I missed out on every, I mean, I, I, I did understand that Roosevelt had been, my pre, had been the president of the United States, and I did understand that there was a first lady, and also my family is uh, Democrats and Jews from New York and very hardcore union, so I certainly understood who the Roosevelts were. but. That was about it. And until I was researching for a previous novel, Lucky Us, which takes place in the 30s and 40s, I hadn't given that much thought to American history. But once, once you read the 30s and 40s in America, the Roosevelts are everywhere. They are in every corner. They are in every aspect of the Depression, of the war, of cultural change. Um, and then I read uh, Blanche Wiesencook's brilliant biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. And there- When did that come out? That was- That came out, gosh, it must be tw almost 20 years ago, I think, the was, first volume. And was that the first book to publicly identify, to kind of out them? Well, it was really certainly the first mainstream biography. I mean, yeah. there was a, there's a lovely book called Empty Without You, which is a collection of the letters. The letters are first opened up in the Roosevelt Library in 1978 which is 10 years after Lorena's death. And Lorena has contributed their correspondence of 3,000 letters to the Roosevelt Library. And they're, they're, I mean, they're completely available. They're not hidden. And so, um, so... But that's not all the letters, though. She did destroy some letters. She destroyed about 200 letters that she felt were indiscreet. The really sexy letters. Uh, that's so it yeah. seems. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and um, so as I'm reading uh, Cook's biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, it's a lot of very straightforward discussion about this very close friend who lived in the White House, who had an adjoining bedroom. And she says, it seems to me, in the most sort of straightforward and low-key way, you know, I wasn't in the room, but here are the letters. Here are the quotes from the letters. 
Darling, I look at my ring on my finger and think, oh, she must love me or I wouldn't be wearing it. I long to kiss the southeast corner of your lips and lie beside you all night. And that seemed to me to be pretty persuasive, you know, in the not just a pal category. And so, you know, I took myself off to Hyde Park and I read the letters, all 3,000 of them, which included things like, which I found very moving. She, she's writing, Eleanor is writing to Lorena from, from the White House and she says, darling, I felt terrible last night when you called and I could not say to you as I always do, je t'aime et je t'adore because Jimmy, one of the useless Roosevelt sons, uh, was standing right next to me, I'm so sorry. And I thought, again, not something you write to a pal. And then just the letters go on and on. For me, I think one of the most moving things is when their romance is over after about five years, and they are still friends, but they are not lovers anymore. Lorena has another relationship with the character that Damien always refers to as the hot judge, and she is. She's like a very attractive blonde federal judge. She's the hot judge. And um, the letter from Eleanor to Lorena is just the letter that every single one of us would write to the great love of our life. It doesn't work on. In theory, everybody has, it doesn't work out. Everybody has moved on in theory, but in fact, not so much. And it's sort of, oh, I hope you'll be happy. And you can sort of hear her saying, you know, ish. <laughs> you know, um, she seems lovely, not that smart, you know. Um, I hear that you've been enjoying the theater, not like we did. You know, it's just that kind of letter. And I was so touched by it because it is so exactly the letter that yeah. all of us would write yeah. to somebody where we know we have broken their heart, we know we did wrong, we know we can't fix it and still they should be right beside us. Um, I mean, the book is, the book is full of, of, of that kind of longing. And Franklin is not the villain of, no. of, of this piece. I think that's one of the interesting things. He's not, he's not cast as the man who is, who is keeping them apart. And in fact, in, in, in your novel, he seems, uh, he's aware of, of, he may not know exactly what's happening, but he, he knows that they have a, a relationship. I think so. I mean, somebody asked me about it, and they said, oh, do you think Franklin knew? And I, I said, you know, even if I lived in a pretty big house, I'm pretty sure that if my spouse had an adjoining bedroom with somebody else, and they joined us for breakfast for 12 years, I would notice. I, I, it can't have been a surprise. Also, again, I think that sometimes there's a, a fantasy that we have that if it was 1940, yeah. it was like 1507. Yeah. I mean, he, Franklin appointed Frances Perkins, who you have only to look at her photograph to go, that is a serious lesbian. And she had a partner for 40 years. And she was his pick. She was not um, Eleanor's pick. Yeah. He thought Frances Perkins was just the bomb. And that's who he wanted. He thought she would get things done. And um, lots of their social circle were gay women. I also think that there's a letter this is just sort of like one of those like interesting slash slightly creepy twists. There's a letter from uh, a couple who are very close friends of Eleanor's, Nancy and Marion, and who have been together for about 20 years. And they're having a difficulty with Eleanor. This is about Valkyll, the, the little building that they had put together in a little community. And they write to Franklin for help. They're like, we're not on the same side, we're not on the same page with Eleanor, and we wanted the pool to be over here, and she wants it to be over here, and what do you think? And he writes back, dearest girls, let Papa handle it. Oh. There you have it. So he knew. Yeah. Um, he, and did, did the children know? Well, hard to say. Yeah. Um, I think Anna Roosevelt certainly knew, and they came to have, actually, Lorena and Anna Roosevelt, an affectionate relationship, although that's not at the center of, of this novel. Again, it's hard to say. I mean, for, all of, for those of you who are grown-ups, I would ask you to think about what your grandchildren would have to say about your sex life. I mean, yeah. that's the people that the historians would interview. They'd go to little Curtis and go, did you think Granny Eleanor was a lesbian? <laughs> and he would go, no way. And I'm like, who interviews little sure, children about sure, this? So sure. I think as the, as, the, as, the, as the children got older, they had their own feelings. 
But like those kids had their hands full. You know, there are five Roosevelt children. They have 19 divorces between them. You know, Jesus. They, they have plenty on their plate without worrying about what Eleanor is up to. So um, we're going we're gonna to talk about the wines in detail. And to join us and help us talk about them, we have the very lovely James Franklin from Corny and Barrow. Please welcome James. Yay. So James, did you know anything about these two ladies when you picked the book up? Um, I have to confess I didn't. Um, and with the surname of Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt was a name that during studies at school I thought I knew a little bit about, but the book was a complete revelation. Um, and actually, not only have I really enjoyed reading the book, but actually the research around it has opened my eyes up to a whole part of history that I never, never knew existed. So it's been quite a journey. Yeah. Um, now, the book is full of booze. Um, <laughs> it um, it There's sidecars on page one. There's beer, there's champagne, there's sherry, which you're going to try in a minute. There's hooch. Um, Hick likes her hooch um, and her bourbon and mint juleps. Basically, she'll drink anything from a jar, essentially. Um, she's, she, she does like a drink. Um, so I know that you've chosen three wines. We're going to start, I think, with the one on your number one, yeah, your wine number one. Sanziana Pinot Noir. So do you want to talk us through this, this, the swirling? Yeah, so we're, we're conscious of these events that we come up here, talk about the wine, uh, swirling, oh, sniffing, nice. spitting. I think one of the Nobody in this room is going <laughs> to spit. I'm just going to tell you now, this is not a spitting crowd. Um, what we find is quite useful to do is just talk you through a little bit about what happens. One of the things that I do is a, a James Wing It In Wine course, because actually, at the end of the day, wine is it's there to be enjoyed and it's simple. So one of the things that we look at, and Damien's doing a perfect job on cue here. Excellent wrist action, Mr. Barr. Oh, look at the that. swirl. Oh, no. okay. Look right. at it swirling. Okay. Uh, so the first thing, actually, the do, first thing. Yeah, so if you're wearing vigorous. white, just do this really carefully. We can't dry clean you. Vigorous. Very good. Just. Uh, it's actually looking at the colours. Because you've actually got the two reds. You've got a very light colour and a very dark colour. And this is going to sound really simplistic, what I'm going to say. But if you're ever wondering how intense a red or a white, or even a rose is, look at the colour. Normally the more deeper, dark, more intense the colour is, normally that comes through in the, in the taste profile. So normally we pick up a glass, drink it, actually looking at the visuals is really important. So swirling, swirling we do because it makes us look like we know what we're doing. <laughs> Not spilling it down our white shirt. Uh, it lets the air go in, lets more of the aromas come out. Now you get around the side of your glass, you get these like little legs all tears. So if someone says a wine has got good legs, you know what they're talking about now. It's got, kind of got a magenta hint around the edge as well. It's not... There's yeah, a, bit of, so there's a tiny got, bit of purple on the edge. That, as a, as a rough rule of, of, of thumb, can give an idea of the alcohol level, which gives an indication of the kind of climate where the wine might have come from. So the more defined those legs or tears are, the indication is the wine has come from a warmer climate. The lesser, more subtle they are, the chances are it's come from a slightly cooler, cooler climate. You can have us put our hand over the glass to, to trap, to trap the smell. You can do, yes. It just, Although can. this whole tent smells like a total <laughs> pub, actually. Uh, and actually, the smell's really important. Uh, it's a great trick to do this. If you blindfold someone okay. and give them red and white wines at more or less the same temperature, it's very difficult to tell. And you think, James, that's crazy. Actually, okay. try it. It, it. it works quite well. So the smell... Our nose taste is all linked in. So actually what we smell is, is, is in some respects, gives us more indications. So our taste buds are, are fairly limited, whereas our smell, since it smells incredible. So if you smell food before you eat it, you actually taste more. So I can also see you now going home and sort of secretly smelling your food. Actually, you do, you do taste more. And it, you look at what the place of the fat duck do now, and you open up dishes and all these scents and smokes and stuff come out. Uh, they even play music to take you into that. So psychological element of wine is, is huge. Smell as well. Certain grapes have different aromas. Uh, the more you drink, the more sort of yeast you get to that. Uh, and we're looking for faults and stuff as well, but we won't, won't go into that. What, what, what are people smelling when they're smelling the wine? Does anybody want to show anything? And you can be as ridiculous and pretentious as you like. And I will say I, this. The great thing about wine is you can never be wrong. Actually, it's, you're lying. You, you're always judging me. I feel like the whole time. <laughs> I feel like the whole... I know that you judge me the whole time. Just don't say it out loud. So what you feel, what you sense is unique to you, and it, it's, it's fantastic. And I think, at the end of the day, I always say this. It's what you enjoy. Don't be afraid. So for me... I get red cherries. Very red sweet. cherries. Very jammy, is not that thing that yeah. you say? A little bit of spice. Like 
Like what, what kind of spice? Like spice drawer spices or like little, little touch nutmeg? Of cinnamon. A little, cinnamon. I always think this always is quite evocative, a sort of fruitcake for me. A little bit of a sort of fruitcake. It smells like it's going to be quite light. I'm going to try light, it now. Yeah, light barbecue. I'm going to try it. I'm driving, so I've got to be a little bit careful. <laughs> Do you have to make that noise too? That's just to draw the air draw over. The air um, best practice in the shower, so you don't uh, sort of dribble, <laughs> dribble down you. What, drinking wine in the shower? Yeah. It's taken years of practice. Yeah. So that just sort of draws the air over. With, with red wines, um, I guess the best analogy you often use is tea. So I'm sure quite a lot of you drink tea. If you leave a tea bag in your cup of tea for too long, you get that horrible slick and that bitterness, and that's the tannin, and that comes from the skin and, and stalk. So what you're looking for on the red is a balance between the fruits and that sort of dryness that you get. And one of the great things about Pinot Noir is it doesn't have much in the way of, of tannin. Yeah. Um, I often describe it as a it's stealth grape, but we'll come on to that in a minute. Then we have a very technical bit of the tasting process, which I call the, actually, the finish, the aftertaste, the length. Uh, it's what we normally, when we judge the quality, the normally... Yeah, yeah like a that, rabbit, like watership really down. Nice. The normal sort of process I go through is the longer and more pleasant that is, Normally, that's indicative in terms of the qualities. If you drink something and it completely dies off, qualitatively... But this is actually, this is quite, I, this is light, but it's enduring. I'm not, it is. it's not disappeared. It's not, no. So a nice, light, easy, on a summer's evening, slightly chilled in the fridge, actually brings more of the fruit characters and dissipates a little bit of the alcohol content. I always chill Pinot Noir for like 20 minutes before... Yeah, 20, 20 to 40 20 minutes, minutes before uh, I serve it. And it's very refreshing as well. So, um, um, in this wine, I'm just going to be shocking, it's from Romania. It is, so... so people, which is the kind of thing that people would have drunk in the 70s, like a Blue Nun or whatever, but it's not. <laughs> it's a very delicious Pinot Noir from Romania. So it's interesting times in the uh, wine trade at the moment. For the first time ever, last year's global harvest... Uh, Demand has outstripped supply. It's the worst global harvest we've had since about the 90, early 1960s. So we're having to be quite thinking at things very differently about traditional areas that we might have gone to. So Burgundy, Pinot Noir's sort of homeland is Burgundy. Burgundy has been ravished by frost, hail, terrible weather over many years now. Um, pricing's gone crazy. Uh, qualitatively, still good, but actually looking at countries that, let's face it, have been producing wine for a long, long, long time, yeah. actually now representing amazing value. And, and you speak to any winemaker and they'll tell you that Pinot Noir is one of the most difficult grapes to grow. It's a very delicate, very sensitive, um, again, we'll come on to this in a minute, uh, grape. So it, it's very susceptible to, to weather. So why did you choose this? So for me, I wanted to choose a wine that captured the central element of the book, the relationship and the tenderness. I think, as a reader, for me, the moments of Eleanor and Lorena together, there is this most incredible passion, but not an outward passion, a, a real sense of, of love, absolute love, and a real sense of friendship as well. Um, and as we said, this wine is very subtle. Its, it's, it's, its power isn't in its potency. Actually, it's in its, in its structure. Um, it's a very, very subtle wine. Um, so for me, I wanted to have something, that, the sensuality, to really capture that, that mood between them. Um, and the name as well. So we're very fortunate that one of our team, uh, Diana, is from Romania, and she was the inspiration for the name of the wine. So some of you might know that Sanziana is a big day in, in Romania, I think it's the 25th of June. Uh, it's a saint's day uh, around goddess Diana, who was the goddess of, of women. And I thought actually that was incredibly fitting that you have these elements coming together. Um, and, and it's just the subtlety of the wine um, and the reserved nature of it. Probably a little bit more Eleanor. Uh, it's lots of finesse to Pinot Noir. It's a very, very delicate quite a proper, proper kind of grape, so it and reminded me a little bit of that. Also, this it being Romanian is not wildly expensive, and Eleanor did like to keep her, <laughs> the purse strings tight at the White House. Exactly, so, so this is a 7.95, it's amazing wow. value. Um, and you're absolutely right, I thought she would, she would approve. I think one of the interesting things about the wider reading was the reputation they had as hosts in the White House was, was world famous for being quite yeah. tight. Yeah. Uh, there's some brilliant, uh, 
exchanges, I think, between Winston Churchill, who obviously might be <laughs> odd tipple, uh, who, who, who sort of commented. I think they were world famous for their... Uh, I think at one point he actually sent wine ahead to the White House when he was going there for dinner, which is the ultimate insult. It's like taking the wine to a dinner party and asking them to serve it. Um, do, people, do people like this wine? Oh, are they, like they are. Does anybody hate it? Nobody hates it. Yeah, so that's that's always interesting. That's I mean, I think for me, if I could put a wine in a bath, this would be it. You could actually. Just seven ninety-five. And you, just you, to have it. <laughs> it's a very, very comforting wine. Seven ninety-five. You can fill a bath. Come on, treat yourself, James. <laughs> I might help you afterwards. There's a hotel next door. It's fine. So let's let's get let's get to the let's get to the second wine. I say that with love, and you know it. Um, <laughs> This, this is a dark, immediately, immediately darker. Yeah, so you can darker. see by the colour, much, much more intensity. Um, so this is a Shiraz Viognier from the lane. And as we touched on Australian. Earlier, sorry, okay. yeah, from, from Australian Shiraz yeah. Viognier. Um, emulating a very sort of classic far, uh, style that you normally find in the Rhone Valley, um, particularly Chateauneuf de Pat. It's quite rare. So you've got Shiraz, a red grape, <laughs> and Viognier, a white grape. Actually, it's very rare to see... Those, those mixes. And as I touched on earlier, the character... So, so it's a red grape and a white grape together. together yeah. but, it's, but it's not rosy. It's very dark. Yeah. So the percentage of the white grape is... I knew you were going to ask. Yeah. 97% Shiraz, 3% Viognier. So 3% Viognier. So like the immediate question is, is it worth doing? Yes. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> I mean, you have to say yes. And I, and I know that the answer is yes. But like, why though? So if I take this in, in relation to the reason why I chose it. So there's a lot of contrasts in the book for me. A lot of contrasts between the characters. We've got Eleanor, who grew up in a sort of a relative life of luxury. And as I touched on earlier, Lorena, her childhood was, was heart-wrenching. Um, her strength of character, and I'm going to use the word in robust in terms of her character and her mentality. You know, Shiraz as a grape is quite a robust grape. It's, it's very, uh, it's quite hard wearing. Um, its ability to grow in quite different warm climates like Australia. And for me, that really symbolises Lorena. Then have the Viognier on its own. I don't know if you've tried Viognier. Uh, it's a very elegant, very subtle. And that for me is the, the Eleanor bit coming in and actually a bit like a relationship taking two extremes and putting them together actually creating harmony and I think for me one of the roles that Eleanor has is that she almost creates this bubble that she does almost take on that motherly figure for, yeah. for Lorena and a sense of protection and, and with that sort of slight the rough edges if I can say of, of Lorena balanced with the finesse from the Viognier of, uh, of Eleanor, actually you get a very harmonious wine. James, that's very beautiful. I think we should we all try the wine. Yeah. You're such a softy. I, def I, I smell something horrible, almost you, you go for it, Prue. Benelin. Did you say Benelin? <laughs> Just checking, Ben. Are you drinking Benelin now, or no? You you get Ben. You get Ben. I get Benelin. For, you, there's a kind of cough. There is a cough. There is, a eucalyptus yeah, yeah. note. Are people getting that? Yeah. A bit of eucalyptus. Bit metallic. Yes. Bit, bit metallic. Of, bit of uh, pepper. White pepper. If I'm being really pedantic in a wine world. Um, You're allowed to be. That is your a job. A little bit of spice. But going back what, to the. What, can I just, Amy? What are you getting from it? Well, I'm still thinking about what Benelin is. But, uh, <laughs> oh, it's a cough. It's cough medicine. Okay. Yeah, expectorant. Nice, yeah. Dicks. At, at Christmas time, I have, um, I have, I sometimes treat myself to a slow gin in Cavonia if I'm not feeling well in the same shot glass. It's very refreshing. Vodka, ben vodka Benelin. You are a busy young mother. You are, aren't you? <laughs> so, you, Damien, you asked the question around, does that 3% really make a difference? And I don't know if you, I'm sure you probably have at some point, if you haven't, try, you know, a straight showers in its own actually would be much, much more forward and fruit, much more spicy. Yeah, it's, this is, does not have the and kind it, of... It no. just takes that, that roundness to it. Um, and again, going back to that aftertaste or finish that we were talking about, this, the balance of this wine for me is, 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 is beautiful. And it's, it's, it's that harmony and two very, very different 
great personalities coming together, creating something quite special. Okay, the final wine that you're going to try is one of the, the I think two or three wines are mentioned. There's champagne in the book, there's Riesling um, in, in the book, um, the sherry, um, which is your orangey looking glass on the right, um, is a drink that they have at several points. Um, when they first meet, I think, um, the, the maid serves sherry spiked mushroom soup, which yeah. she says I can still taste. That actually made my mouth water when I read it. <laughs> well, my mother would be happy to hear it. My mother was a terrible cook and she made three things well. One of them was, in fact, opening a can of Campbell's mushroom soup, and, um, which she did really well, and, um, and adding uh, heavy cream, and then just, a, as far as I could tell, an entire glass of sherry. Oh. And that was, for us, the greatest treat. And I, I mean, I do. I still re remember it now. And because everything else for her, I mean, this was sort of the period of frozen food and canned food, and that is all we ever ate. So doctored mushroom soup was thrilling. And, um, and so I gave it to Eleanor, because I figured since Eleanor herself also had a strong objection to cooking, yeah. um, that maybe this would be something that the, the cook would be able to get away with. Okay, so shall we, shall we have a swirl of our, of our sherry? Um, when peop, I mean, do, is anybody in here, has anybody drunk sherry recently? Are we, are, we, are we part of the sherry revival or are we still shunning sherry? There's a sherry revivalist and a sherry shunner, both in my eye line. I mean, I have to say, a lot of people don't like sherry because they make the mistake of drinking the sherry that's in the cupboard. Sherry's a wine. If you left a bottle of wine in the cupboard and went back to it after 10 years, of course it's disgusting. You know, so, you, you know, that it's, a, it's just a fortified wine. It's just wine with booze in to give it a bit of steeliness, I'm, I'm says he very technically. Yeah, no, I'm glad um, I've come. I feel like I have actually learned something. Yeah, so I you keep your sherry in the fridge or in a cool, cool dark place, and, and, I so, think and you we, don't leave it forever. There's, there's many reasons for choosing sherry. Um, the references in the book, I mean, I go through and, and reference all the, the mentions of alcohol and Thinking about sherry, sherry must feel like too obvious a choice, and quite often when we're pairing wines with books, we, we steer away from the obvious mentions in the book. But one thing profoundly struck me about the references of sherry is the moments in which they happen. There's a commonality in terms of the reference of sherry, it's very personal moments. Probably the most poignant of which is, is, is after FDR's funeral that their first moment together is over a glass of sherry. Um, as Eleanor says, it was a beautiful day. She says over her sherry, I cannot tell you how beautiful it was. There's a moment they share together on a train journey, I believe it is, mm -hmm. watching the sunset together, sharing a glass of sherry. There's a moment together under the quilt, sharing a glass of sherry. So sherry, for me, actually has a lot of poignancy within the book. Um, for me, the, it was a complete revelation. I think for a lot of people, sherry is a revelation. There are so many different styles. We almost went for a fino, which is a very dry style. This is sort of a medium, medium gauge. And then we can go to Pedro Jimenez, which is the best thing on ice cream ever. So that's the super treacly yeah. one. Yeah. The, and the, the yeah. caramel. The right? caram yeah, the caramel yeah. one, the Pedro Jimenez, with, the, with the X. And this is an Amontillado, right? This is Amontillado. So this is kind yeah. of an, in the middle? It's kind of in the middle, yeah. The other element that we look at as well is what was happening at the time. Um, so a bit of historical research for me uh, was one of the things that Franklin did when he came in was to amend and change the 21st Amendment, which was the Beer and Wine Act. Uh, I grew up in Bristol, so Bristol Harvey's Cream is, is something that's synonymous with me. And actually researching them, their biggest export market in the 1930s was to America. So this is not only something that has those special moments between them, but actually would have been consumed at the time. I think possibly well, their style, their style, a richer show. style, richer they, style. They would have had. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's something for me that, that covers many different elements of of of, of the novel. So what, what I would say actually that the smell is is you get a lot of yeast. So you get and part of the colour is that we see here is a little bit of oxidisation has happened, so hence the colour, and you do get that, there's a natural yeast called floor, uh, which you get as part of the, the, the process. So the smell, I agree, is probably not, but actually for me the taste, and particularly that after 
aftertaste that you get as well. Yeah, try. <laughs> That's one oh, way of doing it. So, uh, <laughs> you don't have to. We don't. We won't make you swallow it. You won't. You. You. You're allowed to spit it politely out somewhere. Um, I get. I get um, almond skins. Yeah, very nutty, quite raisiny. Um, almond skins and raisins, but not big juicy raisins. Little yeah. little dry raisins. Are you enjoying it, or are you? How are you feeling? I Did you? am, and I'm. I'm actually thinking about when you said it would be great over vanilla ice cream. I, I absolutely get that because you do get that sort of hard candy kind of quality and sort of nuts, like sort of almond brittle yeah. kind of. Thing. Typically, this would be enjoyed, particularly across Europe, as an aperitif with smoked almonds. Yeah. Is, is fantastic. Right. Um, would you? Is it a bit warm? Can I just say I would like it a bit cold. We did chill it down a little bit, yeah. a little bit earlier. Yeah, a little bit. Cause that just I'm takes a little because it's so seventeen and a half percent. A little bit complaining. So it's yeah. taken up to sort of a standard twelve and a half, thirteen percent, and then it's fortified uh, over and above that. So when you say fortified, what does that actually mean? A, a, a sort of a spirit, a little bit of. Uh, boost of, of alcohol coming in to, to lift it. I used to cook a lot with sherry and I had to stop because by the end of cooking, I'd drunk a bottle of sherry and I was thinking, <laughs> this is going to be interesting. Um, so, but yeah, as an aperitif, smoked tar try this with smoked almonds. It is and amazing. And actually olives. It's one of those wines like everything from Europe. And sherry is going to be, it can only be made in a certain area. Um, it's that, you know, it has a denomination, a geographical yeah, so Hedeth is, 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 is the town. This has been with the same family since 1821, so, so quite, quite a few years. Not this bottle. Not yeah, this bottle, yeah. sadly, sadly um, not. Uh, so, um, and it's going to get much more expensive after Brexit, isn't it? We, we're, it's going to be one of those things. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. Any opportunity I can to be mean about Brexit, you know. I won't, I won't bore people no, with that, but, it but, is. but trade yeah, tariffs is, is a little bit scary. Um, anyway. So does anybody who's not tried sherry, can, can you tell me... What did you think about it for a while? If you had, you liked it, you're, you're nodding. Yes. Yeah, you did. Yeah. That's you what, were, that's you what I would too. say too. I, was, I, I, don't, I don't think I've had a glass of sherry since I stole it from my parents' sideboard when I was like four, <laughs> 14 years old. And it, was, and it was then covered in a layer of dust. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm sorry to say they did not really take care of no. their two whole bottles of sherry that they had in the sideboard. But, this is a nice thing. If somebody put this in front of me with a bowl of smoked almonds, I wouldn't think, oh, you hate me and you want me to go home. I would think, oh, <laughs> this, is, this is a nice thing. Okay, so before um, we, I ask you all to choose which wine you think best reflects the novel, you haven't read it, as discussed by us, um, I'll ask Amy to choose it ultimately. Um, but now I'm going to open up to questions for either Amy about anything or James about Anything, anything specifically anything. wine or books but you can anything. ask more broadly um, so just put your hand yes gentlemen here um, yes <laughs> okay so it's a, this is a, an unexpected <laughs> question which is which 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 just began with Neil and I um, and then it's what kind of sherry would they have been drinking I think all of it would be my answer <laughs> all sherry <laughs> All sherry, yeah. No, they would just have been drinking like Harvey's Bristol Cream or something, though, wouldn't they? It's ganky. Probably yeah. through a straw. Probably through a straw. <laughs> um, and yes, Ethne. Has there been a difference of reaction to the book in America, here, or elsewhere? It's a really great question. Have, has the book been received differently in the United States, the UK, or indeed elsewhere? Um, well, I only just got here two days ago, so I'm not entirely sure. I have the reviews have been good. I've read them. You're, you're fine. Yeah, I, I don't read the reviews because I just feel that it's, it's just bad for me. When uh, my, my very first book was a collection of short stories and I got a little review like this big in the Times and it was very good, but there was one sentence where I felt that they had misconstrued my meaning in one of the short stories and I was just walking around sulking about it for days and I thought, I cannot go through the rest of my writing life feeling this way. And... Um, so do you really not read your reviews I at really all? don't read my reviews. Brian, your husband's here. Does he read your reviews for you? Well, no. yeah, he's in the loo right he's now, gone. but he does read them. <laughs> and, does. My, and, my, and my kids read them too, okay. which is great. And the kids will basically just say, you know, so far so good, Mommy, no worries, <laughs> you know. Um, or then occasionally there's just sort of a deathly silence on a subject. And, you know, and, and, you know, bless their hearts, they just change the subject. And, um, but... I feel that, um, 
I feel that maybe especially in the state, I mean, I feel that people here have been very responsive to the story, and especially the story about sort of this middle-aged romance yeah. and this unexpected romance. And in the States, I think there's an added element of longing to have a White House in which the scandal is the lesbian lovers, <laughs> or you know, the big secret is that Franklin Roosevelt really cannot walk. I mean, we long for those scandals. And so I think the, 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 this, the reminder of what the White House used to look like when it was occupied by people who felt that their job every day was to promote the values of democracy, in which it's not that Franklin Roosevelt was a perfect president, he was not, but every speech he made said the purpose of democracy is not to lower standards, but to raise everybody in this country. Yeah, yeah. That anybody who is poor and suffering is the perfect fertile ground for a dictatorship. Yeah. And I think in America, we just long to hear those words from the White House again. So that's been an added, an added I'm thing. I am. Um, did you spend any, did you go to the White House to do any research for it? Because you seem very familiar, particularly with the bedrooms. Well, the, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, me and Stormy. <laughs> but, um, the White House has changed quite a bit because one of the things that you are allowed to do as a resident of the White House is to re not only rearrange the furniture, buy new furniture, buy new china, but rearrange the rooms. And there has actually been a tremendous amount of rearranging since the 30s. Um, it just was not grand. And so what I looked at were old photographs from the 30s into the, I mean, it was dumpy. The, the drapes were in tatters. Um, the carpets were kind of torn up in the corners. A lot of the wood was chipped. It was just not gilded and grand in any way. And um, so people felt quite comfortable throwing up a wall, knocking down a wall, you know, cutting up a table and making it a desk. There was a lot of that. Um, <laughs> there were a lot of rooms that didn't have closets, so they had armoires, and um, so mostly, I mean, I have been to the White House, but mostly I looked through um, the, oh, the old photographs, um, which were just, uh, they were just fascinating because of its plainness. Yeah, you know, especially, the, now it is not plain. There was no. not, there was literally not a gilded inch to it in yeah. the entire interior of the White House. I'm now just, I can't stop now thinking about Melania's Christmas decorations, which were <laughs> like a special kind of torture. They were so, it was like Narnia, where it was always winter, but never Christmas. Um, that's what it was like to me. Um, I just wondered where, how you decided at what point, when to start the book and when to finish it, in terms of the timeline of the two yeah. characters. Yeah. Um, for me, it ends up, I, I have to give credit to a friend of mine who's a, an American playwright named James Magruder, and I was talking to him, I had, it was about 90 pages in, and I said, you know, I just feel like, you know, I, I, I want one of the centers to be 1945, to be this weekend between them. And he said, well, if it was a play, the play would be the weekend between them, and that would be the entire play. And I thought, oh, well, that's, I want it to be, the center, I want that, it was like a center of a daisy, and so that the center is 1945, and then you go out into, into memory, you go out into how the relationship began, you go out into Lorena's childhood, you go out into Eleanor's childhood, and you keep coming back to the center, which is also how I feel about long relationships. You know, you remember how it was a long time ago, but you also remember the fight you had two days ago, and you look forward to the thing that's going to happen, but it also reminds you of that holiday or that Christmas or that bottle of sherry or whatever it is. And so I wanted, I'm very interested in memory because I, I feel that it's, it's something that has such an impact on how people make their decisions and how they anticipate what's going to happen next. And we're almost always wrong in our memories. We have almost always made it up or embellished it or altered it. You know, that thing that you remember so vividly, that dress and that event and what Uncle Archie had to say, except it turns out if you ask your mother, Uncle Archie had been dead for three years when you had that dress. <laughs> 
and yet the memory is so vivid and propels you forward. So I, I did want to write a lot about that. Thank you for your question. Um, in an interview recently, you, um, you, oh, um, you said that couples have the same, you know, the same five arguments, you know, all, all, all through their lives. It's the same five arguments over and over again. What are the arguments that, that, that the things that Heck and Eleanor argue about? Do you think? Well, I think for Eleanor, in some ways, her argument is is always the same with anybody she loves, which is be better, do more, make the world a better place. I mean, this is someone who unlike most of us who are willing to sacrifice, this is somebody who embraced sacrifice. She was happy to suffer. You know, she, she a had a, yeah, just, just a little tiny bit of a hair shirt, you yeah. know, just quite willing to, to do without um, as a great example. And I think Lorena always felt, well, easy for you to say since you've never had to do without a day in your life. Yeah. Um, and this is somebody who, you know, felt like she was lucky to have oatmeal for dinner 10 days in a row. Um, so I think for Eleanor, one argument is, can't you do better? Can't you, can't you look higher? Can't you not complain always? Um, and I think, um, and for Hick? I think for Hick, it was, you know, how about if we call a spade a spade? How about if, um, we face what is happening and really can't you be with me a little longer? So. Oh, lots of hands going up. Lady at the front there, yes. You may have touched on it already, but can you say anything about how your experience as a psychotherapist may have informed the writing of the book and insights into the characters? Sure. Uh, could people hear the lady? Okay. Um, you know, I, I always find myself thinking, you know, I was also a bartender for a long time, and nobody ever asked me about that. Um, and um, not in a classy place like this, I, I got to say. It was mostly just being really good at pouring a beer and making boilermakers, which I don't think, I don't know if they have in England. No. You know, like, you know, you order uh, your local crappy beer, and, um, and you drop a shot glass of whiskey into it or whatever the hard liquor is that you like. They're disgusting. I mean, I find them disgusting. Um, but I can make 10 different types of them. Um, uh, I think I became a therapist because I am endlessly interested in people. It's my only subject. My kids always say, you know, I have four subjects, death, sex, love, and family which to me is really just one subject, which is people and love. And um, I think that's part of why I became a psychotherapist. I mean, you do want your therapist to be interested in helping you. I mean, you should definitely look for that. <laughs> that, um, that is but, a plus. <laughs> but they should be interested because some people get better, some people don't, some people you help, some people you don't. But for me, I find people's stories interesting. When a thousand years ago, when I went to graduate school, most of the faculty were German refugees. And so I hardly understood anything that they said. These were not people who had mastered English. These were people who were sort of limping along in several languages of which one was English. But the message was always the same, which was you want to keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. And I feel like it was great training as a therapist. It's not bad training as a human being, and it's excellent training as a writer. And that's, I think, that was the, the biggest thing that was helpful to me as a writer. Um, question over here. Hi. Microphone's coming to you. One sec. Um, I think uh, I was very surprised to hear about this affair. You know, I heard about the Roosevelt's, but I was quite surprised that she'd had an affair with a woman and never heard anything about it. And I wonder, um, what do you think would have been the reaction if it had been made public in those days? It's very hard to imagine it being made public in those days because of the repercussions. It's not that there weren't some journalists who knew. I mean, first of all, lots of journalists knew Lorena Hickok. She yeah. was a huge figure in the field, and she was very popular. And she was also extremely well-liked. Um, you know, she, she was very much one of the boys, and um, there was... She was the first woman to cover what we would call in the States Big Ten football, the, like the major American college football game. She was the first woman to ever cover it, and they would like let her go into the locker rooms, and she, you I'm know. I'm jealous. I'm just going to say that. 
Well, she behaved herself, so there you go. That's why um, she was allowed to. <laughs> and that's why they let her in. Yeah. And so I think that, that um, people couldn't imagine what that would mean. I mean you're going to out the first lady, and yeah. therefore, what are the implications for the presidency, yeah. and what is the implication for the government? And there was, I think, really no value in it for the journalists. And they had turned a very comfortable and willing blind eye to President Roosevelt's long-standing love affair with his, oh, I should say, sort of his affair with his secretary. And everybody knew, everybody within Washington, D.C. knew about that. And everybody, um, most of the journalists were male. And I think most of them thought it must be, you know, a certain amount of uphill work being married to Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, the first lady and an icon. And nobody begrudged him having an affair with Missy. And so there was already a certain norm there about ignoring the most personal and private aspects of their life. But I also do truly think that, as Damien said, oddly, they were protected by homophobia because to have been the person who named it would have been to declare yourself a very a, a perverse person in, yeah. in 1932 in the United States. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> I, I would be so pleased for her. I think honestly. you would not be as thrilled as Melania. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no. I'd be, I, yeah, poor yeah. thing, yeah. Um, so I'm going to come to Amy in a minute and ask her which of the, which of the three wines she would make chooses her novel pairing. But I'll ask you first to put your hands up. So thinking about, thinking about the themes of, of delicacy, of passion, of tension, the different characters and how very different they are, um, which wine you would choose if you had to choose one wine to, to sum this book up. Um, you, you can change your mind after you read it. You can also buy all three. It's fine. I'm not going to judge you. Um, so w w hands up for the Pinot Noir for the first one. Is this based one. on what we liked best? Or it's not what, it's not what you liked best. It's what you think matches the book, the, the book in some sense. There's one, two, three, four, five. So I'm seeing seven for the Pinot Noir. Put your hand up more aggressively. doesn't give you extra votes. Um, so for the, the second, for the lane, the Shiraz Bionnier. Five. Again, and the sherry. Oh my God! The sherry haters like no way. She's so down on it. She's like, I can't believe these people. So the, the room is. I would never have predicted that the room would have gone for sherry. I think you all have very good taste. Did, did I vote? Did I sherry? I'm just saying. Um, okay, but don't let that influence you really. Um, which. Which 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 would you which would you go for? Sherry. Oh, there you go. I think it is a fantastic novel. Where so please join me um, in thanking um, James Falconi and Barrow, um, the British Library for having us here, and the amazing Amy Bloom. Yay.